to the Digital Infrastructure Fund podcast. This podcast is talking about digital infrastructure, how to improve it, how to sustain it, and most importantly, most likely, how to define it. Today on the podcast, you have me, Richard Litauer, as your host, as usual. Hello, everyone. And then we have two guests. We have Kaylee Champion and Mako Hill. Kaylee and Mako are joining us today from the University of Washington otherwise known as UW in Seattle in beautiful Washington Pacific Northwest. I hope it's really lovely there. Kaylee is a PhD candidate in the Department of Communication and Mako is an assistant professor there. Also in the Department of Communication, I believe, Mako, is that correct? Primary appointment is in the Department of Communication and I have appointments in computer science, human-centered design and engineering and the information school as well. All right, so all about digital stuff. Now, you two work together on this grant, which was a previous grant funded, I believe, in 2019 by the Digital Infrastructure Program. We were fortunate to be part of the first cohort that was funded by Ford and Sloan. So Ford and Sloan have funded now multiple waves of cohorts. This podcast mainly focuses on the new cohort from 2021. But as part of our series of understanding what digital infrastructure is, we're also interviewing alumnus. So the grant that Mako and Kaylee were on is called Detecting Risk in Digital Infrastructure. Kaylee, can you summarize for me what that means? So the project really started when the first call came out for the digital infrastructure program. Mako and I were working in some studies on Wikipedia, and we were examining those articles in Wikipedia that may get a lot of reads, may get a lot of views, but the quality is relatively low. And when the call came out from Ford and Sloan about digital infrastructure, we thought this measure of looking at what things are relatively popular, heavily viewed, pretty important, but low quality could also be applied to digital infrastructure because we have all kinds of components that are out there that people are using. They're very important, they're significant, but the quality of them is not where it needs to be relative to the number of people who are using it to the importance that it has. And this analogy was very clear to Nadia Iqbal's work on roads and bridges. And the analogy was direct to the issue that came up with Heartbleed. And we thought this approach could be adapted much more broadly than just Wikipedia. It could be applied to not only knowledge as digital infrastructure, but software itself as digital infrastructure. So that's how the project started. Our basic idea is to take the notion of digital infrastructure based on a very, I guess, kind of straightforward expectation that we all might have about digital infrastructure because it's analogous directly to physical infrastructure. We would expect and hope that those roads and bridges that we drive over most often, that we bike over, that we walk over, that we rely on every day will be high quality. And the more important they are, the higher quality they ought to be. But sometimes in software, the quality of that infrastructure can be far below what you would expect given its importance. So the sort of gem of the project, the kind of core of it, is looking at that mismatch between quality and importance and trying to see, okay, this is a source of risk. This is a problem. This is a a vulnerability for our collective digital infrastructure. What's the source of it? How do we get here? How is it that something that's so important can come to be so neglected over time? I like that. That's a great summary. I have a couple of questions just right off the bat. So 
You mentioned Wikipedia articles, which have quality controls, is where you started your research. And then you sort of figured, oh, we could also do this over here. Now, Wikipedia articles have a very clear standard for what quality means. They have a whole community quality approval process where it figures out this is a B-class article, this is a C-class article, this is a stub. For GitHub repos, which I assume is what your database was mainly based on because it's the number one place for repositories in the world, but I may be wrong, there is no quality standard as of yet. It's just kind of put your stuff up there and see how it goes. So how did you start figuring out what quality means when applied directly to code? So evaluating quality or understanding what measures of quality might be was definitely part of the scope of this project. And going into it, we didn't have a, a preconception of what that quality measure might be, but we knew there had been a lot of work on it in computer science. So the first part of the project was really trying to understand what those measures are and what they might be and how we might apply them. So part of what we did for this grant was to evaluate those quality measures. And I'll tell you, measuring quality in software is much harder than measuring quality in Wikipedia articles, at least in terms of, say, scientific consensus or analytic consensus about what those measures might be. Lots of folks have ideas about what quality might look like in software. And unfortunately, despite a lot of work over several decades now, there's a lot of conflicting results in the scientific record about software quality. There's some consensus, there's some agreement, but a lot of disagreement. And in particular, measures that are applied that might give you quality in kind of one dimension, like reliability, might give you low quality in another dimension, like flexibility. So there's these constant trade-offs that developers need to make. And so we tried to look in our project at something that would kind of abstract away some of those considerations and just say, okay, so there's many ways, many paths to quality. There's a lot of ways you can get software that is reliable, easy to maintain, runs great for people, does everything it needs to do. There's a lot of ways to get there. And actually looking down into the code repo is not the approach that we took. The approach we took was one step back from that. And we looked at the software distribution Debian Linux. So the distinction there is that Debian lives downstream from GitHub, as you were talking about. Instead, they inherit from a number of different code hosting platforms, GitLab, GitHub, independent, mercurial, what have you. And they take over 20,000 packages that are out there as part of digital infrastructure and they curate them, they integrate them, they uh, package them, they test to make sure everything works together and they produce a coherent operating system that people can install. So by taking things at that Debian Linux layer, for one thing, we got a body of software that had already been kind of vetted for its significance, for its importance. We got the advantage of tackling kind of a coherent body of effort where there's a single community that's prioritizing across all of those products so that we could apply our analytical tools across this body of work in a way that was consistent and, and reliable sort of across that, sort of that whole span, if that makes sense. So that's our focus. It was on the, the Debian Linux distribution. But I'll tell you, I didn't get away from the mining part of a project. When you do um, research against like GitHub, there's a lot of mining into the repository. When I did this project, the mining was into the bug files, which are stored in an Mbox format. The mining was into all of the snapshot database that Debian maintains. And we got great help from the community on making sense of all this data. And we made great use of their public APIs and their public data. 
So we're really kind of indebted to the, the Debian Linux community in this regard. You know, there's more than 20 years of data with respect to how the Debian community has produced this kind of high quality integrated operating system. And that's what we were able to really take advantage of. Ultimately, the measure of quality that we used is how quickly bugs are resolved at varying priority levels within Debian. And so that's the, the quality measure that we took on because we felt like, okay, however you get there to a package that can be maintained and used and put to the test out in the real world, when it comes down to solving issues, we can get a consistent measure across all of these different products. In the interest of showing our work, in terms of answering your question as you posed it about like quality and how you go about doing it, one of the two big deliverables from the grant in the end was systematic literature review of quality research and quality measurement research in particular in software engineering more generally. So because we had been working in Wikipedia where measuring quality was relatively easy, that we would be able to measure quality in software as well. And the first thing we did was to start to look at the existing literature within software engineering about how to measure quality. And what we found was that it's a big mess in some sense. And so there's actually a systematic literature review, which is currently under review, but there's a preprint of it, which is up and online and on the, the archive, this ARXIV, we can, I don't know, maybe you can provide a link to it, but it is what's called a, a tertiary review. So not only have lots of people been studying software quality, lots of people have been doing reviews of software quality research. And this is an attempt to review all of the reviews of quality research over the last several decades. And it's sort of an attempt to synthesize that work and to also direct our work in terms of how we would go about measuring quality, but hopefully to inform other attempts to measure quality in software as well. I would love a link to that, which we will put in the show notes. Everyone, if you want to go onto the podcast website and find it there. Thank you so much. Quality is a very tough term. Trying to define quality, you know, that's, that's the art of motorcycle maintenance by Persig. Is that it's just a whole thing that you can't really define. Is it quantitative? Is it qualitative? Etc. So maybe instead of focusing on your tertiary literature review, which is, I'm sure, amazing, and I want to go read it, and I will do so later, I want to focus on some of the outcomes of this work. So you looked at Debian, which Mako makes sense because you've been in the Debian community for over a decade now. So probably a lot of your experience there was very helpful. But you applied creative thinking like you, Kaylee, you have an MA in creative thinking, which is super awesome. I want to get that degree. And what did you find out in terms of under and over production of code? What was the fancy term you used? Yeah, it's under production. So it's a little bit of an economic analogy. The idea that supply and demand are aligned by, in a market by price, except, hey, here we are in free Libre open source software. There's no price to align those forces. So supply and demand speaking to each other, you have under and over production as well as alignment. Under production is the case where uh, goods are in high demand, but they're relatively low in supply. And in the case of software, we talk about them being low quality, despite that high importance. So our findings on under production in Debian, in the first place, you know, we looked at over 21,000 packages 
across this 20-year history of Debian. And we found that of these packages, a substantial number are underproduced. They're at risk of failure due to neglect relative to their importance. So over 4,000 of those 22,000 approximately packages face this risk. And that's very widespread. In a distribution with a reputation for quality like Debian, I worry that this is the tip of the iceberg for digital infrastructure overall. But this finding was very concerning to us, and we've been eager to share these results in as many venues as possible. That is concerning. So in order to grapple with it in my head, the idea that there are many packages which are not well-supported, which are low-quality, which are being underproduced, I want to focus more on what that means. Now, I come from a background of uh, early JavaScript node hacking, where the idea was you do a lot of Unixy modules that do one thing well and nothing else sort of in and out. Those modules often don't have bugs because they may be well-tested and they may just exist and do one thing and do one thing well. So that would never show up in your quality report. Can you explain to me what happens with those sorts of packages that don't have high bug reports or don't have low bug reports? Are those accounted for? I'm trying to find the edge cases. Yeah, so handling packages that don't have very many bugs is... One of the reasons why that this project had to make use of some kind of sophisticated statistical modeling techniques, because yes, you might have one bug that hangs around for a very long time, or you might have very few bugs. The data could be scant, the data could be kind of irregular. So we used a method called Bayesian hierarchical survival analysis. And what that means is uh, starting with the Bayesian piece, That means as you have more data or less data, you're able to adjust your estimate based on that in a kind of live and ongoing way. Hierarchical means that we took advantage of the fact that bugs live inside packages. So a bug within the same package might tell you something else about other bugs within that same package versus package to package within Debian. And survival analysis is a technique for looking at the fact that just like you would in like biostatistics or a kind of a more medical application, at any point in time, new bugs are coming in, bugs are getting fixed, things are open, things are closed. So if you're going to measure things based on how quickly bugs are resolved, which is our key measure here, you can't just throw away everything that hasn't been closed. You can't just throw away the stuff that has been open for a very long time or was open for a short time. You want to try to capture and keep as much of that data as possible. So that's why we use the sort of statistical modeling technique that we did was to try to keep as much of that data and get get as good of an estimate from the data as possible to put into our model. And bug data is tricky because of that, but it may be for your package that has very few bugs that our estimates would just not be as good, not be as tight for that. But for packages that have more bugs, we have a tighter estimate. So the concern is the voice is very real because actually pretty substantial portion of packages in Debian have very few bugs. And in many cases, none at all that have been filed against them. Now, often the reason that packages have few bugs is because they have few users. It's nice to imagine that every package without bugs is just bug-free, but it may actually just be sort of ignored. But in some sense, that's exactly what this attempt to measure underproduction is trying to capture. By using Bayesian analysis, what we do is we say we have some idea 
of what the average bug time will be. But we're not very confident about that for any particular package. If there's lots and lots of data which suggests that bugs in this particular package happen to be filed and fixed very quickly, then we would say, okay, we're pretty confident that bugs are fixed pretty quickly here. If there's lots of evidence that bugs are fixed only after a really long period of time, we would sort of say, okay, great. We're pretty sure that that package is going to have bugs which take a long time to be fixed. But for the large number of packages for which there isn't much data, we basically just say, well, it's probably about average and we're not particularly confident about that. If you look at some of the visualizations in our paper, you'll see that there's error bars and they're actually quite big for a large number of the packages. We're not sure for a large number of packages whether or not they are underproduced or overproduced. And often that's a function of the fact that there's just not that much data for those packages. So I think that to some extent that result speaks to a way in which our results are limited or maybe even understated because there are lots of packages that we have not deemed relatively underproduced only because we don't have enough information to convince us that the bugs are taking a long time to be fixed because there just haven't been that many bugs. Again, that makes sense to me. I really like this research. I think it's, it's very interesting in terms of what it says around packages as a whole and software development. I have some broader questions. So one of them is that under and overproduction seem to me to be prescriptive terms that are saying that there's some sort of moral value for what the amount of production ought to be for given packages. I assume that's not what you're intending to say here, just saying underproduce in, in relation to other packages, given all the information you have, which is what Bayesian meant. Am I right there in that assumption that my assumption is wrong? You're correct that what we're looking at is relative to other packages within that body. So within that body of software packages in Debian Linux, the relative under overproduction is really just a measure inside of that community. But I will say that it's not so much a prescriptive term from the outside as our method, our technique is to try to examine what might that optimum relationship be. And the method, as we elaborated in the paper, we took the method of just rank ordering the best with the best. So the, the most important with the highest quality and just step on down the line, kind of rank order fashion. But different communities might have a different way of ordering those things. And they might have different priorities. They might say that, you know, the top thing should be 10 times better or this particular core should be, you know, have this different relationship between importance and quality. And within the method of underproduction analysis that we kind of elaborate in our paper, that's included. So we specified a rank ordering of best to best and worst to worst or highest to highest, lowest to lowest. But what that exact relationship should be is something that communities, I think, can discuss and explore for themselves in addition within this framework. Our approach involves sort of starting out with a baseline. And in this case, the baseline is asking people to say, imagine if I could rank every package in Debian in terms of how important it was. And imagine I could rank every package in Debian in terms of how high quality it was. Wouldn't it be nice 
if they all just sort of lined up, that all the really, really important ones were the really, really high quality ones, and all the ones that are not that important were maybe the ones that were relative to the other ones, less high quality. Now, you might not think that that's a thing that we would want, in which case, yeah, we're making a normative statement that you might disagree with. Now, I think the bigger question is disagreements about how you're going to go about measuring things in terms of importance and how you're going to go about measuring things in terms of quality. And I think that the basic approach that we've described is something which is flexible. You can sort of pick and choose your measures of quality. If you don't agree with our measure of quality, which relies on bug fixing, you can use a different one. If you don't agree with our measure of importance, which is based on installations as reported by an opt-in survey of Debian users, you can also use a different one. And I think that Kaylee and I could think of actually a number of other important and valid measures of quality and important and valid other measures of importance. Important measure of importance. Important point. I would love to explore other approaches to this. So for example, there are some measures of package importance based on dependencies in relation to other pieces of software within the distribution. It would be very easy to think about sort of just slotting that in and seeing how it would work and how the results might be different. I think that what you shouldn't walk away from our work or our paper with is like, great, they've made the report of all of the, you know, overproduced or underproduced packages. And that's the truth given to us. It's been peer reviewed. It's a true fact. This is a general approach that can be used to identify relative underproduction given a set of assumptions and a set of values. And I think that we're more interested in this as a general technique for identifying underproduction using a range of different measures. And hopefully future work by ourselves and by others can help to expand on this and to see how, for example, different measures of quality or different measures of importance lead to different conclusions about what software is at risk. So that is really exciting. I am excited to see where that future work goes. One of the main areas of future work I would like to see happen following this sort of work is that bugs obviously don't just exist inside packages. They exist on an infrastructural ecosystem level. And how do you figure out what quality means on an ecosystem level or what an acceptable amount of you know, turnover is for code? At what point does code just become legacy? And it's, just, it's okay that it dies and it isn't worked on anymore. Those are really interesting questions that I'm not sure you could answer with the work that you've done, but which your work is a really good starting point. It's a good leaping off point for answering those wider questions. So you had this grant from Sloan and Ford, part of the Digital Infrastructure Fund. You did this work. Where did you take it afterwards? You said you have a tertiary article that's out there. You have another paper that's currently in peer review. If I was right in hearing that, where else has it gone? Where are you expecting to take it? And what are you working on now to see how you can grow this body of research into something larger? So there's two main papers that are outcomes of this grant, the underproduction paper that was published with the IEEE, as well as the under review tertiary literature review. We've been fortunate to present this work all along as it's been evolving. I was counting up like six or seven different venues now that we've had a chance to speak to practitioners as well as to scientists about our findings. And staying kind of accountable to the community as the work has evolved has been both challenging and very rewarding, I would say. As part of presenting this in various community venues, 
we've had people approach us who were interested in using the basic technique that we'd sort of developed in Debian in different contexts, including ones that are upstream in the sense that they're not just sort of packages, they're the original source. So for example, just several weeks ago, Kaylee gave a presentation of this work at the Debian conference and in our group's IRC channel, a person from the Drupal project showed up who was interested in applying this basic technique, but to things within the Drupal ecosystem. So I don't know where that one's going, but there's a bunch of different options like that. I don't know. Kaylee's in the process of writing a dissertation proposal, which I suspect will have something to do with a bunch of the ideas that we've worked on here. We're in the process of looking for additional funding to pick this up and work on it moving forward. I think that you'll be hearing more about underproduction and software from us in the future. Absolutely. Uh, the thesis for the proposal right now as it stands, not yet approved, is to show that significant risks to our shared digital infrastructure can be identified by examining the socio-technical dynamics of the communities which produce it. So the idea is to take what we found with underproduction and try to trace it as far as that trail will go upstream, sidestream, ecosystem, in as many directions as we can to try to understand. Now we have a way to measure a source of risk in digital infrastructure. Where does it come from? And if we understand where it comes from, can we understand a little bit more about how to mitigate it? Our research group, the Community Data Science Collective, really studies online communities producing things of values in various places. And, you know, a number of us are trained in sociology and are really interested in understanding social processes. So I think one important piece that we are interested in following up on is using this measure of underproduction as an outcome and starting to do quantitative research to identify the sort of social processes that lead to it. So can we not only tell you, yeah, hey, maybe you should be paying attention to these parts of your digital infrastructure ecosystem, which I think is where we are right now. And instead to say, these are the parts of infrastructure that you're relying on that maybe aren't underproduced now, but the social dynamics around them suggest that maybe it's something that you want to intervene to address before they become underproduced. Excellent. You mentioned the Community Data Science Collective. Am I right? Is there a place where we can learn more about that and how to get involved? Yeah. So our research group is called the Community Data Science Collective. We've got a website at communitydata.science and it will redirect you to a wiki where we have a whole bunch of information about what it is that we're doing and a blog that lists the papers like this one that are being published by folks in the group and a whole bunch of descriptions of ways in which you can get involved. Excellent. I highly suggest people check out communitydata.science. This is super exciting work and it's super fun. Kaylee, I really hope your dissertation goes well and that you publish it so that we can all read it and especially that you will post it to communitydata.science so other people can get involved with that. Before I let you two go, I have one question which I'm asking to everyone on this podcast, which is, can you define what digital infrastructure means to you? It's just a fun question that has a ton of different answers. So Kaylee, could you define what digital infrastructure means? Sure. I love this question because although digital infrastructure artifacts are what I study, 
digital infrastructure is really about people and it's about communities. It's about how people are working together to build amazing things. It's about the person whose pager goes off in the middle of the night to fix what's gone wrong. It's about the person banging away at their keyboard to try to make things better for the rest of us. It's really about how people collaborate to find problems, to find bugs and intervene to save us in ways that we would never even know in the dark of night or in the early light of morning. All the people who kind of work together to produce this amazing environment that we all have to communicate, to conduct education, to record this podcast, everything that we rely on now, I think with modern technology is so dependent on the actions of communities and volunteers and individuals and the collaborations that they conduct. So that's what digital infrastructure means to me. Even though I study the code and the results and the collaboration, I think it comes down to the people and their hard work. That is an excellent answer. Thank you so much. Mago, anything to add? Sure. I'm a professor of communication and I think about sort of these technologically mediated environments all the time. And for me, I'm just struck by, maybe this is something that I felt for a long time. I feel like now in the last year and a half, sort of pandemic style, maybe other people can sympathize with me a little bit more. I feel like so much of our lives is mediated by technology. So much of our work lives, our personal lives, our social lives are mediated by all of these pieces of technology that are built by people and which sort of frame and determine who we can talk to, when we can talk to them, how we can talk to them. And they have so much power over our experience of the world to the extent that our experience of the world is being mediated by these technologies. And so I think that all that stuff, and I agree with Kaylee, it involves the people, but it also involves the stuff. All that stuff that frames our experience of the world and each other, I think all of that is infrastructure. Love it. Thank you so much. Kaylee, Mako, it's been a pleasure to have you on this podcast. A pleasure to learn about the work that you're doing. For listeners who would like to learn more besides going to communitydata.science, where can they find you two on the internet? Kaylee, do you have a Twitter account, et cetera? I do. I am at Kaylee Champion on Twitter. We are at ComDataSci on Twitter. And we are on the Fediverse at Community Data on social.coop. Excellent. And that's K-A-Y-L-E-A champion on Twitter for Kaylee Spelling. Everything else I think was self-explanatory. Thank you again so much. It's been great to have you on. Go out there and continue to make awesome work. And I hope that in the giant Bayesian hierarchical survival scheme of papers and grants, you continue to come out on top and make cool stuff. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us on. Yeah, this was great.